So good evening, everybody. Good evening. It's my huge pleasure to welcome you to one of our um, festival events that we're running this week on Beverage 2.0, Rethinking the Welfare State for the 21st Century and in a global context. My name is Julia Black. I'm a professor here at the LSE. I'm pro-director of research and delighted to chair chair the steering group that has been organizing the Beverage Festival uh, for this week. Um, So I am delighted to introduce our speakers this evening. So uh, to start off with, we have uh, David Willits, who's the executive chair of the Resolution Foundation and has previously, previously served, as you will know, as Member of Parliament for Havanta, Minister for Universities and Science, and also worked, obviously, at the Treasury and Number 10 Policy Unit. Uh, He's a visiting professor at King's College London, spends more time at the LSE. Uh, (laughs) He's a board member of UK Research and Innovation, um, amongst other things, and he's written widely on economic and social policy. So his book, The Pinch, about fairness between the generations, was published in 2010, and his latest book is A University Education, which is published by OUP, uh, and you'll be able to find uh, copies at the back, which I'm sure David would be delighted to sign later. Um, Our second speaker is our colleague here at the LSE, Professor Paul Dolan, who's Professor of Behavioural Science, Director of the Executive MSc Behavioural Science course, some students here this evening on that, and Head of the Department of Psychological and Behavioural Science. Um, And there are two main themes to Paul's work, uh, developing measures of happiness and subjective well-being that can be used in policy and by individuals looking to be happier, and considering the ways in which lessons from behavioural science can be used (coughs) to understand and change individual behaviour and add to the evidence base in this area. So he's worked a lot with policymakers, uh, number 10, the author of the Sunday Times best-selling book, Happiness by Design, and forthcoming The Narrative Trap, in which he talks about how stories we tell um, about how we ought to live our lives can harm or, I suppose, help us. Again, and copies of his, well, already authored book uh, is out, will be outside. So what are we looking at this evening? So the giant, as it were, the beverage giants, the five giants, um, one of those was ignorance, which we framed as education <laughs> and skills. And Paul and David are going to be arguing about a very topical issue in a very um, uh, obvious place about the value of a university education. So for whom and for what uh, is and should be the purpose of un- university education? So, obviously, a massively topical issue, and the way that we're going to... This is going to be a little bit choreographed, and I am going to ask you to be voting partway through. Uh, So if you'd like to take the opportunity now to start logging on to said um, uh, voting Mm -hmm. poll, so you can use it. It's called Poll Everywhere, and you might have... If you've logged into an event already in the festival, then you're on already, but otherwise, if you just type... Is it up there somewhere? Um, so anyway, if you just type, you can do this now, okay? Poll EV, P-O-L-L-E-V dot com forward slash LSE Festival um, into a web page uh, on your browser, then that should be, you should be able to get onto that. And you've got, if you need what LSE Wi-Fi, just hook onto the cloud and you get free access there or edgy roam if you're, you know, from a university. So you can start doing that now while I just faff around with a few more introductions, Okay. Uh, so, um, so social media housekeeping if you're on Twitter then the hashtags uh, for today's event are hashtag LSE beverage and hashtag LSE festival um, if you've got your phones out now it's a good time to put them on silent uh, so it doesn't disrupt the event the event is being podcast um, 
and hopefully will be made available um, as long as there are no technical glitches. Um, and the way I'm going to structure this evening, I'm going to ask David and Paul to kick off talking about what they see to be the benefits of university education, both to individuals and to society. And then the votes that I'm going to ask you to think about and to vote on are really in relation to the scale of university education. Should it be expanded? There are uh, apparently twice as many people going to university now as we've got five O-levels back in the early 1980s. Um, and then the key issue of funding. So I'm going to do a bit of Q&A before the voting, but I'm going to ask you to hold back questions on those two issues until we get to the poll vote, and then we can take some more debate from there. Um, okay, so that should have given you plenty of time for faff around with polling while I was wittering on. And I'm now going to turn over to the main event of the evening. So I'm going to ask David now to, to kick us off. Thank you very much, everybody. Enjoy. Thank you very much for that introduction, Julia. And uh, it's great to be here at the LSE again, as you say. I think my fourth time during your festival, so it's great to be here. And, and debating with Paul, whose work on happiness and uh, personal and human satisfaction is fascinating. But uh, I'm here to sell a book, and uh, here it is. Um, and you'll make me happy if you buy it. Uh, and it's really an attempt to look at university both from the historical perspective. It's not all about how to pay for it. And one of the chapters is about... Uh, the case, whether there are benefits to individuals and society from going. And I'm only going to give you one chart, but this is my attempt at, at challenging what we must now think of as the edgy sceptics. You know, why bother to go to university? What's the point of more education? The edgy sceptics have shifted their ground when the school leaving age was going up from 15 to 16. They said, why do people need to stay on to school until they're 16? And then they say, why do they need to stay on until 18? Now they say, why do they need higher education? Um, a lot of the and I'm aware from my own experience, there's quite a lively internal argument within higher <coughs> education about which of these types of benefits are legitimate. Some people think some of them are not even legitimate points to make. But this is a deliberately inclusive chart. So across the top, you've got individual benefits. Along the bottom, you've got social benefits. Uh, and that's one, way of, that's one way of dividing it up and one way of, uh, uh, of thinking of it. And then on the... Left, you've got non-economic benefits. And on the right, you've got economic benefits. So if you think that appealing to the fact that graduates earn more than non-graduates is a horribly reductionist, utilitarian way of, of thinking about higher education, don't bother with looking at the top white quadrant, but we've got other quadrants specially for you. So whichever way you want to think about higher education, there's something here that will give you confidence that it's worth going. Um, and I think Julia wants us first to talk about um, happiness, which is Paul's notice. We're starting, in other words, on Paul's special subject. Um, and the top left-hand quadrant is evidence of kind of returns, non-economic benefits to individuals. Uh, and for each one of these assertions, there is empirical evidence from social science. I haven't just kind of put, cooked up a nice list. Uh, there, are, there are footnotes, there is research, there is evidence that justifies each one of these Statement. <coughs> there are there are sceptical arguments, mm -hmm. and we might come. To, I mustn't go on for too long. We must. We'll have a Q and A discussion. Some people will say it's just selection effects. People like that go to university, so there's no added effect from university. And my response to that is partly some of this evidence, not all of it, but a decent amount of it, is proper social science 
which tries to allow for, se- for selection effects, which compares identical twins, one of whom goes to university and one of whom doesn't, which takes systems where at some point when universities have been oversubscribed there's been a lottery to allocate some people, not others, which try to take people who've achieved the same level of A-levels and some go and some don't. So in other words, for, as we're in the LSE, the Home of Social Science, they are, people are trying to do this properly. They're not just... They're trying to allow for selection effects wherever possible. Um, and then another argument will be it's not that the university really actually adds educational value, it's just signalling. Going to university just signals that you've already got some attribute, it doesn't add any. Uh, and that's part of the effect. I mean, Steve Jobs famously said you should get, win a place at one of America's elite universities to signal that you're smart and then you can drop out, that's fine. But after he dropped out, as I say in the book, after he dropped out, he then then did go to Reed College to study calligraphy. And I think calligraphy rather affected his subsequent (coughs) career. So it does actually have an effect. Um, It's not just signalling. The real things happen to you. And if I may pick a a quarrel with a sort of a strand in social science, institutions do matter. This is where my, sorry, my hidden bit of Toryism kind of comes in. Actually, institutions do shape people. Marriage shapes people, the family shapes people, universities shape people, three years at prison would shape people, three years at national service shapes people, three years at university changes people. So it does have an effect on people's behaviour. There we are. There's the argument in a nutshell. Thank you. <laughs> right. right, slides. So the first. Surprise of the evening for anyone that's ever been taught by me. I have slides. <laughs> I don't know where they are. But I do have them. Ah, there we go. So, um, now I love university. I love having gone to university. I love working at the best university in the world, obviously. Um, but I hope that's being recorded. <laughs> but. I don't think it's for everybody, and I don't think the story that we tell about the importance of higher education is a good one. And that's what I'd, that's what I'd like to argue now. So first of all, I think... I, I, so you can buy Happiness by Design outside if you haven't already bought it. If not, I don't know why not. Um, the second book, The Narrative Trap, will be out next year, so you'll have to wait for this. But um, in the book, I argue that our quest for reaching for more and more wealth, success and education is harmful for individuals, and we'll talk about social welfare shortly, um, that instead, and this is where I want to focus attention, we should instead pay attention to a just enough approach rather than more please. And actually, you'll see the wall outside that we've got set up for people to write things on it. I have just enough when. Now, I should say that, of course, poverty, failure, and ignorance are sources of misery. It's, it's, it's really fundamentally important that I say that, because it's true, and the evidence does support that. But we can get addicted, just like we can to drugs, we can to wealth and to success and to education too. And so I think we might just about have reached the point where we're craving too much of these things. And I'll talk a little bit about happiness data, two slides. Uh, Now, of course, I don't want you to feel sorry for Oxbridge students... I don't want you necessarily to feel sorry for those students reading English at Cambridge. But you could feel sorry for them if you care about people's experiences of their lives. Because 40% of, 40% of them report having depression, being diagnosed with depression, not the, the self-report. 
Um, we could look also at, uh, obviously in the interest of time, try and keep this brief, we could look also at, of course, a number of people that leave universities, and we maybe have some discussion on that with the audience in due course. Um, dropout rates are low in UK compared to some other countries, and we're doing very well with that, but still significant numbers of people leave university in their first year. All in all, for many students, university education is not a good experience. And so one of my favourite lines from Happiness by Design is, lost happiness is lost forever. That is, you can't really trade happiness across periods in the way that you can money. If you're miserable and depressed, you are miserable and depressed. Now, it could be, of course, that there's a delayed gratification. That, that all of you sad people that are, doing, uh, that are studying here at the LSC are going to be happy when you leave and you get well-paying jobs in the city. Um, of course, I'm sure that will be true for many of you. But then, so the important question then next might be, uh, is higher education for you, uh, for you good for you, not just in the experience, but is it good for you um, when you leave university? And David quite rightly points to some good evidence, some of it done under randomised control conditions of sorts. Uh, of course, you can never really do RCTs in the, in the real world, so we have to be careful about interpreting those evidence. And I should say that because the massive caveat to the slide that follows is that it's correlational. Um, but at least it creates a discussion about whether, potentially, it might be causal. And here are some data. As many of you will know, I'm fully committed to measuring happiness as a flow of experience. I'm, I'm not uh, particularly fond of questions that ask people to reflect upon and evaluate their lives. There's a whole series of questions and challenges around those questions that we haven't got time to go into. I'm much more interested in measuring and interpreting how people feel moment-to-moment, -moment, day day-to-day, as they live and breathe their experiences. The best data set for exploring that evidence comes from the US. It's a big data set, American Time Use Study. Uh, one of my ex-PhD students, Laura, is in the audience here, uh, has looked at the data extensively and produced a foreign correlation. <laughs> um, if you are doing a PhD, uh, you might not want to look at this slide. You might want to look away now, um, or actually, better still, stop doing it. No, no I'm not really suggesting that. That was the joke. <laughs> Um, here, here is happiness uh, measured in your experiences and purpose. It asks people how meaningful their activities are during the course of the day. And these are average scores out of six for pleasure and purpose by different degrees of qualification in the US. So basically, if you, are, if you believe anything, if you can infer anything from these correlations, it would suggest that if you are interested in maximising pleasure you should probably stop around the time that you finish high school. If you are interested in maximising purpose, that is the meaning of your experiences, you should maybe do a master's degree, um, a bachelor's degree. You have to, have to bear the pain of having done that in order to get the pleasure of the master's degree afterwards. But in any event, those people report being happier. You should definitely not, whether you are concerned about pleasure or purpose, do a PhD. Um, <laughs> Now, of course, there are selection effects, and you might have been even more miserable had you not done the PhD. Um, but, my, but my serious point to conclude is that we've become addicted, and David actually said it himself, is that we increased the school leaving age from 15 to 16, then to 18, then we're expecting university, now we're expecting people to go on and do masters and PhDs. You need, a, you need, a, you need uh, certain qualifications in order to get any kinds of jobs that previously you didn't need them for. We've ratcheted up expectations about what it is to 
be educated and to live well, and I think that's a mistake. Thank you. Thanks. Um, so I'm going to take Chair's privilege and just kick off with the first question to, to both Paul and to David, which is, in the, in the balance between the, the individual benefits and, and the social benefits, where do you lie the, the overall... I mean, we talk a lot about the individual benefits to, to, to higher education, we talk about a positional good, just even going, signaling you've gone to university, even if you didn't continue. There's an element of pleasure and purpose as long as you don't go on for too long. So there are some benefits there with the stresses, but a lot of the discussion as well is about the social benefits of being a university. And, David, you had, you know, a good combination there of economic and non-economic benefits which touched on health citizenship more generally as well as the economic and, and Paul just to think about the reflection so where for you are the the social benefits of having a <coughs> cadre of one's population having gone through higher education what's that overall benefits to to society on the balance when uh Robbins came out in 1963 and we had about 5% of people going to university and we're now close to 50%. Uh, When Robbins, in the year that Robbins came out was the last year of national conscription into the army. And if you want to capture what in the long run happens, and so until the 1960s, England was a country with more conscript soldiers than students... And it's now a country with many more people or students than conscript soldiers. And that changes the, the nature of uh, the cultural values and patterns of behaviour of a society. Well, I think it's, so there are growth returns to higher, higher education. I think they're pretty clear from the slides that David put forward and they're well established by and large. Um, the question is whether that growth is good for us, I think. And I think we should have more of a conversation around whether some of the um, consequences, the adverse consequences of economic growth in developed countries is particularly helpful in, in relation to, for example, climate change. Um, and also, it's worth saying, there are some downsides as well, right? So you see an increase in white-collar crimes um, when people go to university. They, they get very good at tax evasion um, and uh, putting money in Panama. <laughs> Yeah, there's less violence. I mean, the, the evidence I'm growing for... I mean, we, we, we can't just sort of compare yeah. notes on the evidence. And, and Paul is the expert and cites some US evidence. The, the project that I draw on was a project which actually David Blunkett commissioned when he was Secretary of State for Education called The Wider Benefits of Learning, which was carried on for about a decade, based at the Institute of Education in London, and now part of UCL, with a series of papers produced, including... Uh, for, and this is now uh, more historical, but for the 1958 and 1970 <coughs> cohort studies, clear evidence, only of a correlation, but appeared to show higher levels of life satisfaction and happiness amongst people the more educated they were. So there is some British evidence uh, which suggests people are happier. And, I mean, I, when, when what Paul thinks of as a kind of terrible rat race for positional goods... I have to say, I think of as progress. It just seems to me that the, one of the drivers of progress in modern society is more people getting more education uh, and more people having the opportunity to go to uh, university. And it's not just a British story. And briefly in the book, compare two countries with very similar levels of education and economic performance in the 1950s, Egypt and Korea. 
and Korea is now on 70% participation in higher education. Um, and of course, I'm sure there are stress and anxieties in Korea, but I'd rather be in Korea than in Egypt. And the story, the story of, of now a sophisticated postmodern society uh, with not just a high economic growth rate, but producing cultural products that we in the West ourselves consume. It's impossible to, to think how that would have happened without the massive expansion of higher education for people in Korea in the post-war period. Okay. Well, so first of all, Korea and Egypt would be far too hot for me to live anyway, so I wouldn't want to be in either of those places. But um, I think if you talk about progress, I think since 2010, we've seen a reduction in further education funding of about 30%. We're now starting to see primary and secondary school funding cut per student. As, 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 the, as tuition fees plus the state subsidy of higher education continues to expand, that, can, that to me, just cannot be right. That, that seems if we have a priority... It ought to be, surely, early years education. Some of those interventions are not as effective as has been often stated, but certainly primary, secondary school and further education. That would seem to me be a much better measure of our social progress than ever-expanding higher, higher education would be. Uh, there, the, 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 I think the argument is, goes exactly the other way around. The funding changes, and we, I'm sure we're going to have to devote some time to funding changes. But the funding changes I brought in were driven by an agenda that had been shaped for 20 years, that when higher, expen- when higher education was financed out of public expenditure, it did indeed lose out to more politically persuasive arguments for the NHS or primary education or secondary education. So smart people in HE thought, we need some means of financing higher education where it's not public spending and competing with those claims. And it so happens, because on average graduates earn more, There is an available route for funding it, uh, namely graduate repayment. So the current system, sadly what Paul said is a fallacy that is now quite widespread. The current system is not public spending. Indeed, one of the reasons why Vince and I went through the pain of shifting to the 9K fees was precisely so that we didn't have to reduce by so much the the real public expenditure we're putting into things like um, FE colleges. I completely agree with Paul that FE colleges are, uh, as everyone says, the Cinderella of the education system. I think they have a very powerful case, but they have a case for public spending. Yeah. The, the higher education is not public spending. So if you were to cut the graduate repayment scheme for education, you don't suddenly release some public spending that you can put into FE. If anything, the fact you've got HE out of public spending... Gives, slightly improves your chances of protecting HG. And if you don't believe me, just contemplate what will happen if we have the Corbyn policy and the yeah. fees and loans go, and it is re- just to match that amount of resource requires approximately £11 billion of public spending. Is £11 billion of public spending coming into HE going to be good or bad for the prospects of decent public expenditure for FE colleges, primary education and secondary education? So we're going to ask you to vote in a minute on uh, expansion and funding. But before that, I think we should, ask, we should take some questions from you. So if you could just... Um, we've got people with roving mics around, so if you could just stick your hands up in the air if you'd like to ask a question. I'm going to take about three in turn um, and ask people to respond, ask, ask them to, ask people to respond. So person in green jumper, blue jumper, uh, and down here at the front in stripy tie, and then we'll come back to you in the middle. 
So you've got to wear something bright in these things because I, I can't <laughs> on what you wear. <laughs> Thank you. Louis Coiffe from Wonky. I think you're the fourth academic this evening I've heard argue for more funding to go to early years, potentially at the cost of HE. Do we need to take one from the other? Okay, good question. Uh, next person. As I say, I'll just group them together. It gets uh, more questions in. People can then... Um, I think very often some people have a, have a calling, and people like um, Hillman have talked about this, and very often for those kind of people, and that wouldn't certainly be everyone, the best place for that to be played out is in the academic sector if you have a calling to literature, history, politics, whatever it is. It's, that's, that's where you'll be drawn. And I think for those kind of people, um, I accept that they're probably a minority, it's, it's, it's really, really, really the most important thing that they'll do in their life. Yeah. Okay, excellent. Um, I'm down at the front here, yes. <clears throat> Nicholas Barr, London School of Economics. Uh, a statistical question. <laughs> if you've got an upward bias in spending on higher education, isn't... If you spend too little on the other bits of tertiary education, so people can't do well in technical education because the places aren't there and the resources aren't there, isn't that going to bias upwards the returns to higher education, that you're going to get more people going to university and those benefits then get attributed to higher education, which might well be attributable to other parts of tertiary education if there was a level playing field for funding? Okay. I'm going to take those three questions. I know there are another flurry of hands, but I'll come back to you in the second round. So, um, Paul, do you want to yes, right. no. So, no, to the first question, we're, we're trying to keep the answers uh, yeah. short, shall we? No, it doesn't at all mean that. Um, so we don't have to take <laughs> from one or the other. Um, the second point on the calling, I, I actually think, I mean, we should be thinking about state subsidies targeted in the right places, and particularly where we think there might be social and cultural benefits from having more diverse populations at institutions studying particular courses. I think that's really important. For example, the arts. Um, and, and, then, and then thirdly, on the returns to education, I think, that, I think that's right. I'm not going to argue with Nick about stats. But um, uh, it's very interesting in the US, if you look at the returns to um, education by student enrolment for the last 40 years, 50 years, they perfectly match one another. They perfectly match one another. The interesting question then is why haven't the returns fallen as student numbers have increased? And it's, and it's the, the students like Steve Jobs enrol, but they don't finish. They're not like Steve Jobs, they can't finish. Um, they're basically men, mostly, who start at universities or college, so they recognise that there are returns, but they don't complete their courses. Um, yeah, I mean, on early years, and I'm... A I'm actually a bit of a sceptic about some of the claims that are made for early years, as I, as I argue in the book. But the, <coughs> the, whole, the, the point I'm trying to get at is that we have different ways of funding education, and they're not all one single part of public spending. And let me cite one of my mistakes. One of, I, we extended fee loans to mature students, and I thought mature students, part-time learners, would take out fee loans like... 18-year-olds leaving home to go to university. And the evidence is that fee loans do work for 18-year-olds going to university. There's been no, more people going to university from that age group than ever before. Poor students aren't being put off. However, and so you can fund that not requiring public expenditure. However, for mature students and part-time loans, the loans model doesn't work. 
So you actually do probably need to bring back some new forms of public expenditure to promote mature students. It, in other words, has to be horses for courses. It isn't the case there is one model. And the fact that we've managed to get higher education out of public spending, I think, basically means we can put more public spending into the other stages of education. It's not a zero-sum game. On the, uh, yeah, I think that was a powerful intervention about the uh, case for academic study. We'll probably turn to it during the debate. But we should, I would just say, as we're sitting here at the LSE, another problem in the debate is people have one kind of picture of what a university is like. And they have a picture of a university like this one. And most of the people who, who um, uh, say too many people go to university, in my experience, they've not been to the University of Coventry and the University of Teesside and the University of Hertfordshire, and they're vaguely dismissive of what they call ex-polys. They haven't seen practical, vocational and technical education being delivered in higher education, which is what happens not just in Britain but in, in America. It, they, I doubt if people sit around in Harvard saying, should we really count one of the Midwest A&M colleges standing for agriculture and manufacturing Driving, driving America's business performance, sit around saying they're not really universities. They accept they're universities, they're just different types of universities. So once you realise the broad range of institutions, and hence the broad range of experiences, I think that helps to make the case. Yes. Uh, and then on, on Nick, as I say, I, I, it's, this upward bias, look at the historical record of spending on HE. The unit of resource per higher education student fell consistently for 20 or 30 years. The only policy that we have had in post-war Britain that has actually increased the unit of resource in order to reverse historic losses is fees and loans. I know of no other policy that credibly has increased resource. The other policy of financing out of public expenditure led to steadily diminishing resource. Okay, so I have another couple of questions. So there was somebody in the middle there. Uh, you just keep your hand, keep waving it up so people can see you. Uh, person at the front, do you still want to come in? Uh, so person at the front here, and then if you could go to the row behind that person afterwards. That would yes, be uh, uh, David Neil Smith, um, a former MSC student uh, politics here. Um, I wonder if the panel could comment on uh, the recent statements uh, implying variable fees for uh, different courses and what effect that is going to have. Uh, uh, will it mean, as some uh, suggest, uh, uh, that people will go for cheaper uh, courses and the more expensive courses, perhaps, you know, very valuable courses, uh, will be in great danger of sort of not being able to be continued in some universities? Okay, thank you. So if you could wave your hand and thank you. Hi, I'm Han Ho. I'm uh, one of Paul Dolan's monkeys on his uh, executive program, Behavioral Science. Um, two critiques to both sides, if I may. Um, first of all, to Paul, uh, is there not a risk if we um, talk about university being overvalued that it generates this negative signal to, uh, that will have a deleterious effect on social mobility, in particular on, say, working-class children of equal academic ability as middle-class children, but who would not normally expect to attend university. 
they should be encouraged, I think, for, uh, both for themselves but also for society as a whole to, uh, to attend. Um, secondly, to Lord Willits, is the, one of the elephants in the room not that technology is having such a huge disruptive effect not only in the wor- world of work but also in uh, the world of education and that actually universities uh, and higher education as a whole need to adapt in order to meet the requirements of the future. Excellent, thank you. So I'm going to get two more questions and then I'm going to ask for answers and go to vote. So um, lady in the corner down there and then gentleman the front. Apologies, I'm not wearing a, a bright-coloured top. <laughs> um, this question is more for uh, Lord Willits. Um, you mentioned um, that one of the drivers in society is about the, the expanse of higher education available and people are going to higher education. Um, but, and also that uh, 50%, there's 50% participation in higher education um, compared to back in 1963. Um, but then you also, on the other hand, um, say that the institution matters and it's about the experience of the institution. So which is it? Is it the institution or is it the levels of participation? Excellent, thank you. And then final question this round. Uh, do you not think that mass higher education is harmful because it means that people get the vote years before they pay any tax. <laughs> and this leads them to vote for politicians who are promising a free lunch. <laughs> Excellent. Right, range of questions and some specifically targeted at both of you. Uh, David, do you want to go first on? Um, I'm a bit of a sceptic about variable fees myself. And in fact, <laughs> all the people who say... Lots of people come to me and say they should be variable fees... But they all have different criteria. And, in fact, you could detect that even in the interventions we heard in the last week. People are often different. So, uh, and, I, and I think trying to imagine some quango judging courses by those criteria is very difficult. Is history, of, is history of physics a wonderful STEM subject? Or is it a pernicious liberal arts history course? Who, I mean, someone has to judge. But so it's, I think it gets... I don't, I don't think it's a productive route to go down. Um, I agree that universities need to adapt. Can I answer the question you put to Paul as well? Because I think that listening to Paul, and he's very eloquent about this, you know, there are people uh, how from, especially from working class backgrounds, where this whole experience is, deter- is uh, 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 depressing or unpleasant. Think of Paul. Yeah, here's, there's this trendy guy who's clearly worked out before coming along this evening, wearing his outfit. <laughs> and instead, um, with, his, um, with his slight working-class accent, but now, <laughs> dress him in tweed, dress him in tweed, put a glass of port in front of him, give him a little moustache and put a pipe in his mouth, and imagine he's sitting in a study in Oxford or Cambridge saying... In the words of the of Jude the Obscure applying for Bibliol College, Oxford, <laughs> when responding to the applicant, Sir, I have read your letter with interest. And judging from your description of yourself as a working man, I venture to think that you will have a much better chance of success in life by remaining in your own sphere and sticking to your trade rather than by adopting any other course. 
And when I actually look behind the engaging personality, I actually find the substance of the views quite hard to disentangle from views that would be completely unacceptable if they were said by someone coming from a different background. I think it's very dangerous, actually. I don't think universities are for middle-class people and working-class people should stick to their station. And I think it, I disagree with that argument profoundly. Um, I think uh, you've got to let me say. I want to get my retaliation in first. <laughs> <laughs> so, Paul, yeah, you come to that. That's my. Oh, uh, there was, uh, there was, see, that's a middle class thing to do, isn't it? Say you're going to be nice. <laughs> say you're going to be nice to someone before you come out, and then stab them right in the front. <laughs> uh, at least working class people stab you in the back. No. Um, so, uh, can I just, can I, <laughs> can I just say, as a, as a very serious point, I've ne- I've never said, and would never say that universities are for middle-class people only. What I will say is the evidence suggests that universities turn people into middle-class people by their whole educational process that we take people through. Now, LSE does a fantastic job at widening participation, uh, better than any other university that we could compare ourselves to. But, and, we still churn our students through a process that essentially forces them, by and large, to become middle-class. Now, there's a lot of things that we can do in the education system, light-touch interventions. We could talk about some of, those, uh, some of that um, evidence, if you, if you wish, that would actually give working-class people a much better opportunity of doing well at universities with very simple interventions, for example, around self-esteem and values um, and things that they bring to the education system that are not typically seen in universities. second thing to say is that it's not just about working-class people going to university. It's about middle-class people not having to. There is a huge expectation upon the middle-class parents that you've got to go to university. If you don't go to university, you're a failure. Actually, going into vocational training, uh, into further education, into skills training is a hugely advantageous and beneficial thing for them to do for themselves and for wider society that don't mean they need to tell the story of having been to a university. Now, I do accept... Can I carry on? Um, now, I do it... I, see, that's, that's me being deferential. Um, which is a working-class trait, by the way, in case you didn't, in case you didn't know. Um, so the other thing is uh, that... Uh, I'm just trying to be funny, and I forgot. So um, different, different types of university. That's, that's, that is fundamentally important. And you're absolutely right, David, that there are different types of university. University of Coventry compared to LSE. The problem is, the problem is that the selection processes still result in many, many, many more affluent people going to the LSEs and the Oxbridges. Let's say Oxbridge, not LSE, because we're really good at it. To Oxbridge and not to the University of Coventry. So some people have argued that you don't now have um, essentially a two-tier system of people in higher education and those not, but you have a two-tier system within higher education, which is those people going to the University of Coventry from working-class backgrounds and those people going to Oxford who aren't from working-class background. There are great swathes of this entire nation, Wales for one, where they don't even get a chance to go to Oxbridge. Right? Now, that is wrong, and I've never said, I would never say, with my port or without a port, that that is, that is fair and right. But what I will say is that the expectation and the narrative around going to university is harmful. The 50% of people that don't go... We've had all this talk this last few days about higher education funding, appealing to middle-class people, essentially, about whether, your chil- whether how much you're going to have to pay for your children's education through university. Not one single conversation about the 50% that don't go. I haven't heard anybody talk about that. What about those? What, are we gonna, what, are we gonna, what about the skills training? What about the opportunities in life for those people that never get near university? That's what I care about. 
Excellent. Okay, so... Okay, so I'm going to ask you now to, to vote, actually, so whoever's working our little uh, voting gizmos so that we can get a sense of where things are coming from the audience. I think we're getting quite a good sense of where the debate's going, certainly from the floor here, but uh, <laughs> so what it is that you're thinking. So, um, <coughs> so I just need to get that um, first question up. Um, I think it should have come up on your poll screens. Is that up there? I'm looking for somebody to... Here we go. Uh, so you can uh, now cast your vote. So should university education be expanded from the current levels, for example, to 80% of 18 to 21-year-olds? And I can see how many of you coming in. So I've got 41 of you voting so far. It's moving all the time. I might time limit you. I'll give a rough estimate of how many are in the room and how many have managed to log on. Are we doing pretty well? 67, 68. Uh, probably about another third of you to go. So should it be expanded or somewhat disagreeing, strongly disagreeing? This is the LSE. No one to say strongly, will they? It'll be somewhat. <laughs> It'll be somewhat, yeah. Pros and cons. Pros and cons. On balance. On balance with some qualifications. <laughs> Terms and conditions apply. The question's worded wrong. <laughs> OK, so I think that's stable. Oh, no, no, no. OK, I'm going I'm to count down from 10, OK? So you've got to get your vote in by the time I get down from 10. 10, <coughs> 9, <coughs> 8. Seven, six, are we still going up? Five, four, three, last chances, two, one. Okay, what have we got? So we've got 95 results there. We've got, as you can see, so the, that's pretty, pretty strong on the somewhat disagree to strongly disagree uh, as to whether or not university ex education be expanded. Okay, so we've been, just been hearing some debates about that. I think it would be reasonably consistent. Do either of you want to, to comment on that? Well, that's consistent with the polling, and it's, this is an insider-outsider phenomenon. People who've been to university and go to university don't think they should be expanded. People who don't go to university think they should be expanded. So um, I think it's... Uh, so people here at LSE are voting. You don't think people who don't come and go to university should go to university as well. And I'm afraid I think you've got social trends against you. More people are going to go. I think they want to go. They, I think it would be wrong to stop volunteers who are applying to university from going. Uh, and, of course, people already there have always said consistently it's rational economic behaviour. We don't want any more people to go. You're on the inside. But I tell you, there are outsiders who still are knocking on the door trying to get in, and I don't think you're going to be able to stop them. Yeah, it's, I, I, I actually don't disagree with that. I mean, I, I think if you see... I mean, the issue if you see also about the fees, I know that, I know that you, David, thought um, that universities would set variable fees when you gave them the opportunity to, and they all went to the upper limit much to your chagrin. Um, but that no, was I a signal. No, I learned from that. I learned from that. You did learn a lesson from that, 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 that markets... Prob I mean, jeez, I'm going to say this as a neoclassical economist, which I'm not, clearly. Um, that actually markets sometimes do function reasonably well. And, and the fact that, that you know, students did recognise the fact that there was, there was quite significant value in that education at those fees, particularly given the evidence on the disadvantaged students going to higher education, and, uh, and quite compelling from reading your book, actually, this is worth saying, in England, much more so than Scotland, where they, didn't, where they stopped tuition fees for home students. So, um, uh, thank you for that. And, and, and look, we, in London, in, in parts of London, we're over 60% participation. <coughs> Kensington, Twickenham, over 60%. Um, in Hull, it's 20%. 
So what are we to do if we're not going to have any more growth? Are we going to stop people, we're going to go around those schools in Kensington that pride themselves on sending 80, 90% of people to university and saying it's a terrible mistake, we've got to reduce participation in Kensington? Or do we tell the people in Hull, 20% is quite enough for you guys, thank you very much, no more? In my experience, the only way to get more opportunities for people from Hull is to have more places at university. If it is a zero-sum game, and the only way they get to go to university from Hull is we have fewer people to coming from Kensington, we're going to have a very long wait. And from changing the experience that they have when they get there, that's really yeah, significant, yeah, I, David. I like it's really it. important. It's not just the supply side effects. Students, a lot of students don't, don't want to go to those institutions and turn into people yeah, but that's why that I, drink poor. And that's why part of the argument... And I, compl- and I agree with Paul on That's why part of the argument is my book, is can we just have a rather better understanding of the range of ways in which universities function. When you go to the University of Hertfordshire, they are training people in automotive engineering so as to work in the automotive industry uh, in Luton and more widely, and the same at Sunderland. If you go to Bournemouth, they're training people in media technologies so they can make mo- help make movies in, in Hollywood. There are lots of... One of the great things about universities nowadays is they come in so many shapes and sizes. And a lot of the debate works on the assumption that there's a much narrower range of types of university than we've got. And it's not a... So, and I quite agree, there are universities... I think one of the delicate issues that Paul is rightly getting us into, I think it's the... In the Russell Group, participating in the social life of the by and large affluent students at Russell Group universities is expensive. And there are kids from less affluent backgrounds who would find having the resource to participate in the assumed social life of such an institution tough. One of the reasons why we rightly devote out of that £9,000 of fees, £1,000 to bursaries and other support for low-income students, which would be one of the first things to go if fees were cut. Um, it may be the case that going to a university with, where your peers have lower spending power is less of a threat to you. That's the kind of injustice we need to tackle that's the kind of background. But there are lots of people from different backgrounds going to different types of universities. Okay, so I'm going to move... OK, yeah, OK. Take a couple of questions, and I'm going to move to the second vote. So, yeah, next round, very quickly. Yeah. Oh, I just want to rekindle the class conflict between you two um, by suggesting that um, the problem really is that mass educate, mass higher education is essentially elite higher education writ large. That's partly because of its residential nature, which hasn't been mentioned yet this evening, but hugely important in what Paul has been talking about in terms of creating a new class of people, in a sense. The fact that uh, unlike America, unlike continental Europe, we're still overwhelmingly residential in our universities. And also, contrary to what David keeps saying, our higher education, our post-school higher education system is not at all well differentiated. It is overwhelmingly three-year undergraduate degrees, teaching analytical skills. Even if you're doing golf studies, you write essays, essentially. If you're in Germany, A, you would go to a local... You know, if you're you're a working-class, middle-class person from Essen, you go to the Essen Fachhochschule Technical University. You don't leave home and you get a technical education. Or in America, you go to a community college 
So we have created, because mass higher education is elite higher education writ large, we've created a massive status gulf. This is far worse than the 11 plus. People go on about the 11 plus. We've created, as Paul says, 50% of people go to university. How are the other 50%? The the shadow casts back on the other 50%. You You don't take account of that, David. And we have created Michael Young's dystopia. We have created the rise of the meritocracy as a result of creating a mass higher education system than the tyranny also this is a whole other subject the tyranny of cognitive ability this is brilliant you carry on my final point we've also created a tyranny of one particular kind of human aptitude cognitive ability you know the ability to write analytical essays there is a huge range of abilities that therefore get downgraded and disdained in our society excellent thank you sir yep. I'm looking at hands. I've got two. I've got uh, one in blue jumper and then at the back, if you could keep waving your hand around in beige jumper. Yeah. I think slightly linked to that last question, we've talked about the role that higher education has upon society more broadly. Um, I think one could argue, given the percentage of students at Oxford, Cambridge, other elite institutions who are privately educated, uh, the higher education actually currently plays a role in entrenching uh, class division and inequality rather than reducing it. Um, So my question is, should universities see social justice, social mobility, equality of opportunity as a fundamental part of their mission? Uh, And if so, should they be taking more aggressive moves about it, for example, on contextual emissions? Okay, excellent, thank you. So final question before we go to the next vote. So it's Lady Beige. Hi, um, thank you so much for this talk. This is really interesting. Um, just following up on the rant uh, from the gentleman in the front, um, people... Well-articulated um, argument. I, 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 uh, people in the UK, I think The Guardian was recently um, reporting that now um, many people who went to higher education in the UK have debts, approximately £57,000 worth of debt for having attended higher education. And me, having both a background from doing my undergrad in a country... Germany that doesn't have tuition fees for higher education and now being here, I think it's really interesting that you did not really look at, you know, you were mentioning it, but I would really love some comments or some more comments on the, the, the levels of tuition fees and inequality. Okay. Excellent. So I'm going to ask both of you to be reasonably concise. What's the, what's the basic rate of income tax in Germany? So this debt is not like uh, an overdraft or a credit card debt. It says that over a threshold of currently £21,000, but we'll go up to £25,000, you will pay a 29% rate of income tax. That's what it is. It is not an overdraft or a mortgage. It's not like the American system. Uh, When I left university, the basic rate of income tax in Britain was 35%. So I don't find the prospect of a 29% rate while you are paying off the costs of your university education and only if you are earning a higher income um, unacceptable compared with your German model on the on the earlier interventions I mean for, to David and we must carry on this discussion I say to David you've got to get out more you've got to visit more universities and see more types of them and a lot of the um, what we don't have this range well no it is it is all I can say is having visit I haven't it's like sort of Scottish, what is it they have to do? Climb them, doing all the Munros. I haven't quite been to every university in Britain, but I've been to where most of them. 
Um, and as you go around them, you are struck by diversity, obvious and also subtle. You can tell the difference between an, an, an what was originally an Anglican teacher training college and what was originally a mechanics institute cr- created by dissenters in the 19th century. You can sense the differences, and they're still there in the ethos. Um, and it isn't the case that everybody is writing essays. Uh, far from it, it's... it's in, in the indeed, in the most prestigious institutions which shape our picture of what university will be like, a lot of people are writing essays. But part of what I'm trying to do in the book is say, look, let's accept they come in more shapes and sizes. And in Germany, what is happening? The Technica Hochschulen, of which David is such an admirer, and I am too, they're taking university title. Then increasingly calling themselves Technische Universität. Are we supposed to go to Germany making a. No, you're going to, And the pressures for them to do that are significant. So if they're having university <coughs> title in Germany, if when the Moral Acts and the state, state land grant universities were created in America, they were given university title, why are we so unhappy about giving them university status in the UK? Yeah, they, can, they can call themselves okay. universities. That's yeah. absolutely fine. But do those different things. Like community yeah. colleges in America, like the Fachhochschule, they do different things. Now, of course, if right. you do golf studies, you're not just writing essays, you're also going out, I don't know, designing golf courses or something. But you are also if you talk to Honda and Nissan in the northeast, they recruit their automotive engineers from Teesside and Sunderland universities, and they, have, they agreed the design of the automotive engineering program, which is just like how the German... It, it does happen. It happens behind institutions called universities. And if only, and I hope we could at least agree on this, if only every time... And I had so many arguments with Andrew Adonis. Whenever I referred to one of those, he called them a bad university or an ex-poly with a, with a tone of dismissal, so they should go back to being called polys. If Technica Hochschule in the universities in Germany, if they're universities in the US, if they do these kind of things in Britain, don't begrudge them the title of university and try to understand and value a bit more the range of what they do. OK, so I'm going to move you on now to... Because uh, we've got a final vote, which I quite... We won't really have... Um, we are coming up towards town, but I'd just like to get some gauge from the audience on, on what is going to be one of the biggest debates going forward for the next uh, well, year or so, it's all, or all years, has been raised, which is about funding. Uh, so, you've, again, the poll will be coming up, so should it be publicly funded? Now, this is a pretty yes-no question, um, and so I can imagine we're going to have... So I'm still on 36. So I got it. we got up to about 70-something last time in terms of votes and polls. So let's just... Coming in there. This is good, isn't it? Julia. It's good. It's good. It's a really good thing today. I stopped doing lectures. Oh, look, more of you. So there's more... I've got more higher response rate on the funding one than I had on, the expan- on the whether or not it should be expanded. So we've certainly got stronger sentiment here. Oh, some people are voting twice. That's outrageous. Right, we'll stop. <laughs> OK, we'll call a halt. I think it's still pretty clear. OK, so whether or not it should be publicly funded. I've only got... So I've got two minutes left, so I'm just going to ask each one of my panellists to, to respond to the extent that they haven't already addressed this question um, on, I suppose, where they think that... What the outcome... Where they think the fees discussion should go at the next level. Um, we've got a pretty blank question there, but obviously we know that the issue about fees and the way they're currently structured and the, the repayment is quite a complex mix of 
interest rates, combination of fees, loans, the interest rates which are then charged, the repayment rates, a number of different components to that. So which do you think would be the most uh, pressing aspect of reform, I suppose, to our current system? I'm going to rephrase it that way. Um, All right, very quickly, very quickly, targeted funding for socially disadvantaged uh, people and socially worthwhile occupations. Um, If there is state intervention, it ought to be to redress some of the market imbalances, and particularly in relation to the question about justice around um, entry requirements uh, to universities. And secondly, I I agree with you fully on this, David. We should really stop talking about £50,000 as a student debt because if you want to disadvantage working class people going into higher, higher education, that's the way to do it. Okay. David, your most pressing area for reform. Well, I mean, this is... So we, we, people go to university. We don't, we've, you've already voted that we don't <coughs> any more people to go. And now we've decided that these people who are going, who are earning so much, they should also yeah. be publicly funded by the people who aren't going. Um, uh, but we claim somehow, and if I may say so, this is... There is an element of self-interest. Now, I personally think it's not why... Given that you don't want the people in more than 20% of the whole to go because you voted against increasing participation, you now want to tax them so that you can continue to go without an increase. Uh, It is internally consistent. Totally right. Uh, I don't regard it as embodying the highest political principles of the LSE. No. (laughs) Okay, and on that note, (laughs) on that bombshell, as I used to say, this has been a fascinating debate. We could have gone on for a lot longer. Um, There will be many more debates that are going on around the LSE over the course of this week, but there are all the time, so please do come to as many of those as you can. Thank you very much for your participation this evening, and thank our speakers. Thank you.